0: How's Work is an unscripted, one-time counseling session focused on work. For the purposes of maintaining confidentiality, names, employers, and other identifiable characteristics have been removed. But their voices and their stories are real.
2: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to The Future of Entrepreneurship, of Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: He's been this rock for me in the last five, six years of life. All the things that I almost didn't know that men could be, I just really don't want
3: to lose it. She's my work wife and I was a work husband and then we got a divorce and we remain friends but we don't know how to really build a full functioning relationship because many of the suppositions are gone.
1: When we had like our work breakup we didn't know how to have the conversation and it became clear that we were trying to have the conversation but we just kept on missing the other person and it really fell apart.
3: All hell broke loose with conversations around race, racism, white supremacy, and racial justice here in Minnesota. And it challenged both of us.
1: The start of the social movement in George Floyd happened in our backyard. In the middle of it, I didn't know all of the pressure on him.
3: There's kind of like one black neighborhood in the whole state. But the rest of my life, the rest of my days are spent in almost all white environments.
1: He taught me a lot. And one of the conversations that we ended up having was that if I really wanted to be an ally, it was my job to stand aside if there was a person of color that could take my place. It was one of the reasons that I ended up seeing what else was available.
3: At the time, it was a financial decision. She was recruited with a boatload of money.
1: So we end up in this fight for me to stay. And I found out that the men were getting paid more money than I was. And when I needed him to have my back, he didn't.
3: And I hired somebody that could do what she couldn't do. She can't be a black woman. I hired somebody who's a black woman. And we don't speak about it. Like I've never said that to her, but I feel like it is just barely unarticulated.
1: I would love for someone to help guide us through this conversation that we don't know how to have so that we can heal.
3: If I can't talk to her about race and being a black gay man in government, you know, I'm only going to be able to go but so far in the friendship. And, you know, I want to go farther. She tells me she wants to go farther as well.
4: These two people have worked together for years. He was her boss, they were lobbyists together. They have been partners, work spouses, and then they divorced. They've been trying to talk about what happened. Race is a major topic of their conversation. And there is no way that they can talk about race without my addressing the racial composition in this room at this moment. So before they plunge, it's important that I get to ask him, here is this black man who's going to be talking with two white women. How is that for him?
5: Well, I appreciate you bringing that up because that was an explicit conversation I had with my therapist last week when I talked about us doing this podcast and she asked me some blunt concerns. She's like, is she going to be okay, sufficiently okay with me on race? And I said, well, we're having that conversation and I want to own that. So thank you. You're actually inviting an element of exchange that um, I wanted to have. So I don't feel like it's two white women against a black guy here. Uh, I went into this looking for some skills. There's like a bunch of wood and there's tools and we're committed to building a house. I don't know how to do it. I need somebody to teach me how to use a hammer and a screwdriver and then I'm fine. I'm an experiential learner, so.
4: Right, but I'll add a piece. I may think that holding a hammer is super easy. And if I make the wrong assumption, I need to know it.
5: Well, you would hear that from me.
4: Good. I, I make mistakes. And I ask to stand corrected when I do. Um, I didn't necessarily think you you anticipate uh, two white women against, but but it's two white women with their perception of the world.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: Well, and I'll just add... I have been on a journey in my time here in Minnesota to really understand the nature of male privilege. And so there's an element of having a session facilitated by a woman that works for me. The level of understanding I have has gotten me to understand the overwhelming amount that I do not know.
3: Yeah,
4: same here. some work pairs enter my office and they eye each other as to who's going to start and it goes very slow this pair has been waiting for a year to have this conversation they've talked to themselves about the other and with the other in their mind but they haven't been able to start that conversation but it's ready to burst and so when they walk in I didn't have to do much, except to stay out of the way, to create a safe container, and to slow them down.
5: I gave up everything I thought I wanted when I chose to be open enough to come to Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And I was lost, mildly depressed, uh, literally had no bearings, no friends, no relationships. And really didn't know what I wanted to do professionally. So I left myself open and landed a dream job in what is perhaps one of the most difficult areas of the country for somebody like me to live. Um, On the surface, it looks perfect. Right underneath that, it's that shadow side to Minnesota.
4: Somebody like me. A, A
5: gay black man living in one of the whitest states in the country. It presented a lot of challenges, ones that I didn't understand I was getting into when I got into where we live, the job I have. It's like what I want to do, but had no idea how difficult it going to be. And so, and I had nobody to talk to. The very challenges I put myself into, I felt like I didn't have any partners, but I had this tremendous capacity to do good. So within a few months, I felt like, wow, God, I'm in the right place in the right season to do so much good. And then you came into my life and there was this, this kind of click and things just kind of grew from there. And so as I got a sense of purpose, a sense of direction, I had a sense of like my, I was coming into my own power. And so there's like growth, 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 and then there's this plateau. And I think the shadow side to life here and the difficulties of life for people of color came front and center. And you were the only white person in my life at that time that I felt was even open to having a conversation about a conversation. And I say plateau because I got to know you even more deeply. And I felt the friendship was... Going deeper. So the question for me is in this day and age, what does it mean for a black man to have a white woman as a very close friend? And this kind of work interface for our friendship has racial disparities mm-hmm. at its heart. Working in a space where the authority and pathways to power and kind of professional development are Based upon sex and gender. Mm -hmm. I'm a black man supervising a white woman, and we're supposed to be dealing with racial disparities. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity, and there's a whole lot of pitfalls in all of that.
4: What are some of the opportunities and some of the pitfalls?
5: Um, I don't feel like I can mess up, I feel like there are white eyes on me that are waiting to see, is he as good as he acts? Is he as good as everybody says? If he messes up, he will not get the benefit of the doubt.
6: I don't disagree that that's fair.
5: So here's the opportunity. What makes Minnesota so fucked up for people of color? These were deliberate choices for how the state was organized, how the history with Native Americans, certainly the 20th century history with black Minnesotans, White people listen to white people. They don't listen to black people when it comes to race-based difference in outcomes, lived experiences, all the kind of objective and subjective measures. And my assessment in my gut told me that you delivering those messages would be far more impactful than me or any other person of color. There's something about you that gave me a glimmer of hope that she's the white person that may be able to break through here. And so that was the hope and opportunity that you were uniquely qualified to really seize that opportunity.
6: Okay, now, what breaks my heart about that is the part of the reason I left is because I didn't think you saw it. Like, I was coming up against the only way to have this be solved and the only way to have this position be better was to elevate a person of color and that I didn't belong in that position anymore.
4: That is the only reason I left. Did you know that?
5: I did not. Not until you told me later. I genuinely thought that it really did come down to money. So, the the conversations we had about money Mm -hmm. spoke to my experience with compensation. I took pretty much a two thirds salary cut. So, I gave up a very well paying job because this is what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so, I knew that money could take you places if that's what you need in the next season of your life. I didn't want you to leave. You could win over the white folks whose minds really needed to be changed and you'd be able to create space for people of color. I felt like you would grow into a, a spot personally, professionally, spiritually on this job where I have created this space and now I'm going to fill it with all of this talent who are people of color? Like, that's the, that's the, like, I'm not gonna inhabit it. I'm gonna see it. You see the wave that happened with George Floyd. Yeah. That literally created ripples throughout the entire world.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: I never wanted it to be because of police shooting of an unarmed black man. I wanted it to be because we decided to really be honest about how fucked up it is to be a person of color here and say, we're, we're done, we, everybody, black, white, indigenous, white, black, everybody, said we're done, and we're going to do the really hard work of being honest about how we gave, got here and how we're going to change. I saw you as a partner in all of it. That's the reason why I hired you. I mean, it was competitive, but it really was, like, you were by far the
6: best. I think it was so hard, like, I'm still with you on all of those things, like, that's what I Wanted to do it. And the, I, what's funny is that I think that for both of us, like money became the herring that we were fighting over because I think we didn't want to talk about the other pieces. And the only reason that money was a thing is because I knew two guys were making more than me and I was doing way more work than they were. And then when it was like, oh, we reclassified the positions based on your work, I was like, but those guys didn't even do the stuff. So that became, you know, like they're going to get raises too for work that I was doing and already underpaid for. And that seemed like the easier fight to have because numbers didn't seem as personal as like this. And as, 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 as race and gender. And I think that's what's hard is even hearing me now. Like more than anything in the world in that moment, I wanted to hear from you what you just said now. I wanted to know that I was on your team. And the hardest thing for me in the job that I'm in now is I feel like you're on this battle and I'm not a part
4: of it anymore.
6: I know that there's huge disparities. I see them play out all the time and it's not fair and it's not right. And and I was under the impression from some of what you said, and also like outside sources, that like the only way to have move this work forward is to have somebody that didn't look like me in the world. We had a conversation once where you said, like, if you really want to be an ally, step aside to let Black people lead. And like, I thought that was the only choice I had left. And then it was hard because as I was leaving, not only did I like have the grief of leaving, but then I felt like I let you down. Like, I couldn't cut it. And it wasn't that I didn't want to, or I didn't have the passion. It was just that I couldn't find the space.
5: It's hard to hear that. Um, and I wish we had had some quality time to have talked these things through, because you are right, we were talking past each other. The assessment you made about me saying, good allies step aside, it is true. About creating space, but that's the mechanism for creating space. that think, I believe, is the right thing to do. And I say it's inadequate because if staying in that position allows you to create space, then it is about staying in that position. I'm not saying you took it wrong. Hearing you now, I'm like, wow, I can see why she what she took it that way. It was the whole
6: everything that was happening all at once, and you know other people in the organization and everything. like There was a huge push for, for movement and change and for people of color to have voices in the rooms that we were in.
4: Meaning? Well, I remember
6: one meeting that we went to and it was for a bill that was specifically to help children of color. And the authors of this piece of legislation were people of color. And you'd look around the room and it was mostly people that were white. And, um, I know the privilege that comes in the skin that I am, that I'm in, but like I grew up in a family that didn't have much and I have, you know, family that struggles with mental illness and I have family that struggles with addiction and, and, you know, teenage pregnancies and court cases, but you know, there's stereotypes for everybody and there's stereotypes that come with how I looked and, you know, I have privilege in those stereotypes.
4: What does one see when one sees you? In that stereotypic frame? I I mean,
6: I'm a white, blonde, skinny, not unattractive female that, you know, has a high degree of education. And I'm usually the one that is dressed to the nines with all my makeup done and, you know, big high heels. And like that just comes with it opens doors. I know it opens doors.
5: So you've been a beautiful friend in sharing your family with me. And I understand the struggles and kind of what day-to-day life is like. And so and that makes me proud of you. I get joy when I watch how proud, especially your parents and both your sisters, how much how proud they are of you. And yet, when I look at your life through my experience and even my experience here in Minnesota, I can't help think that their race never held them back. It didn't. Your family had a house. Mm-hmm. So despite all those difficult circumstances, yeah. and then that raises the question, why is that so different than in my neighborhood where families mm-hmm. gone through effectively the exact same things and they're unstably housed, economically fragile, and have lived on the margins and it has been historic. Why Why is hard work and determination
6: work for your family
5: and doesn't for black and brown families?
6: I mean, racism is huge and there's systematic racism and so many things. And like, I understood those pieces, but I think that when we were looking at the conversations between you and I, when I was leaving, um, I was seeing it through like this very personal you and me, I needed you on, you know, my side that. I failed to see the macro level of all of the pressures that you have. And it really wasn't until George Floyd died and I watched what happened in Minnesota and I watched what happened throughout the country and the world. And I saw where I can take off the lens of like, I recognize systematic racism is a thing and I can take off that lens and I can go home at night. You don't get to do that.
4: What's the story? Who owns the narrative? For her, the story is money, gender. A friend that didn't back me. The man that I relied upon who let me down. His story, money somewhat, gender somewhat, race a lot. She's able to individualize their breakdown. He sees it as part of a much larger Context, And so the question is, can they align the story? And the point is not to try to answer who is right, but to find a way to integrate the different pieces of the story so that they can do the repair that they are so eager to do. The sense I get is that you have had many conversations in your head with each other, imaginary conversations. And so they've just been waiting, like here at the prefrontal, you know, to come out. And uh, the only thing you don't know is what's going to come out first. Mm. And then what it's going to feel like when you actually say it out loud in front of the real person. And that's the discomfort Yes. or the sadness or the sense of loss or the sense of missed opportunity. And then to, you know, have fiction and reality find each other.
6: Yeah, how many times have you had this conversation in your head?
5: Oh, I've been having it since the June you, before you left. So many times. <laughs> I mean,
6: it's scary because when you say things, have to say them out loud like I am so cautious of like I said I already feel like I let you down I don't want to hurt you and I don't want to be like when we were talking about whether or not we were going to go on this podcast and you said one of your biggest fears was that I would be the bougie white girl in the suburbs and like walk away from this I never want to be that for you
5: I don't want you to be that for yourself yeah. I don't want that choice to be about me
6: well but I, I mean that's who I like at my core, I think that's who I am. Like that's who I want to be in this world. I want to be on the right side of history. I want to be the person that is, you know, giving voice and and helping find voice. And I recognize the mess that this world is in. I mean, and it's not just you know for you. You know, like my God, most of my godchildren are mixed race, mm-hmm. and like I worry about them every day.
5: The weight of all of that was in how I interfaced with you at that point, you know, it really was at the end of the day, stripping away our relationship, my friendship with you, Mm -hmm. I'm using a lot of political capital and pushing all of these boundaries for a white woman.
6: Yes. Well, and I think that that's what was hardest. I didn't know how much you had to push because there was all of these ways forward. And then I don't know what the barrier was for that to be no. When I have the CEO saying yes, and I have the like senior VP being like, yes, and here's the money. And then all of a sudden it fell apart. That I think that instilled in me that it really wasn't about the money, that it was something that I wasn't doing or that I couldn't do. Which is why I think when you said that you do think that I was in a position to do that was so like cut super deep because that's what I thought wasn't there.
4: And how many filters were there still now?
6: (laughs) Probably a lot. Mm
4: -hmm. um, What I will just say is you don't have to be rude for the purpose of being rude or blunt, but you don't have to be nice. You can be caring, but you don't have to be nice. But that's the voice that's been talking. He let me down. I can't believe that. That's the dialogue inside. And he has his own. I mean, you know, he also has one. And it's these dialogues that are standing in the way of your having the friendship today that you want to have because they have not been addressed, those voices inside of you that say let down, Betrayal? Are you for real? Well, and I think that maybe that's why
6: the letdown was, or like for me, it felt so like so let down is you outside of work, you were somebody who like accepted me for who I was, no matter what terrible thing was happening in my life, or how crazy something was going on in my family, or um, how off the wall, I was going to be with anything. There was just this like complete level of acceptance for who we were. And um, I have a history of, you know, sexual assault as a child, um, assault as an adult. And um, you were somebody that was always so safe for me. and, um, And somebody who saw that and wasn't afraid of that and had those conversations with me. And so really you became like, uh, the man in my life that I was closest to and um, somebody that I looked up to and somebody that I cared about and somebody that I saw as um, who has, you know, just so much, so much wisdom and um, uh, probably unfair to you. Um, I thought that like that micro relationship was so valuable to me that it wouldn't matter what happened with, you know, the board or what happened with uh, the legislature, what happened with the Senate, that even in the breaking that might be, like you would see who I was and the, the work that I was trying to do. And it really did feel in that moment that um, it was like, I wasn't worth fighting for. And like, it, it like, it just broke me. Like it just broke me. And and it wasn't even that I blamed you for it, it just, you know, it hurt. Uh,
5: I, out of deference and probably fear of our, the scrutiny I had and our HR protocols, um, I was uh, never able to tell you how I had to fight and why it took so long. Um, but I can share with you that the only pathway that I saw where I could create a path was the example of you and your totality, and it had to have this collateral with the boys. Now, um, it is, it's hard for me to hear you talk about the pay because I'm feeling like Wow, she's holding me accountable for something I didn't create, a problem I didn't create. That was no, that and you really didn't
6: that, create it. Yeah, it was before you.
5: And I, I did a lot, I did everything that I knew was within my power um, to solve for that. What I think I didn't understand was what it meant to have to have everybody else rise your coattails. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because I would, if I had known that, I probably I would have rather have had a conversation about that. I got to do it this way because this is literally, like, this This has a ripple effect elsewhere if I can't do it this way. they're telling me, like, it's everybody and nobody. Um, But it was about you. Like, it was easy to do to the extent that it was about you. So here's where I'll be unfiltered. I'm hearing determination in your, in, in how you're talking about this. And it fits a pattern for me that, triggers a lot of uh, resentment. And so what What you, what you this sounds like and looks like to me is every other time I, or some other black person, I knew never got ahead because a capable, smart, ambitious, pretty white woman got the advantages. That was the person that the organization wanted to take, that's the person that society wanted to take care of. Here we go, we're throwing money at a white person, would we do this if she were black? Would we do this if she were not white? But, and I'm like, and she's my friend. When you came to my office and you were crying. Mm-hmm. I was like, I can't cry. I'm mean, literally cries, I mean tears just at the back of my eye sockets. I'm like, I can't cry. Mm-hmm. From my experience, it's like she's got the privilege, she's got a job offer, whether she wants it or not, you got Fucking good job off with a shitload of money. Whether you want it whether you wanted it or not, having that is privilege in and of itself. And like, and I'm sitting here like I can't even cry. I can't even be emotional. I've got to be stiff back, soft voice.
6: Oh, and you still are, And And I'm
5: completely dispassionate about all of it. I I
6: understand the macro pieces and I they're, all, they're valid, and, I, and you're right about how people get promoted, and you're right about who gets promoted. Um, and we've seen that with a number of our friends in the organization that are not promoted. Like, I mean, that's, that's real. That is real.
5: I mean, as, as this is happening... This if, is about
4: me. <laughs> well, and
5: that's why I want you to understand my piece to it. To Sorry, me. I
4: feel like we're ignoring you. <laughs> Look, you don't need me, um, except that every once in a while I will just say, take off another layer of filter. You, on some level, want to individualize this and say, but it's me. And he, on some level, is saying to you, there is you, but then there is that bigger thing, and you're just one person in it. And I cannot just make it about you and me. I can never leave the macro frame of race, of gender, of power, of money, of double standards. We cannot think that we can insulate ourselves from all these larger factors. On some level, she may never have really understood why he didn't stand by her or give her the raise that she felt she was fairly due because in his mind, there is a bigger unfairness. And he could not go to bat for her and separate that from the larger historical and social reality of Black-white relationships in the workplace.
5: There's uh, only two other Black people on my floor, so out of a floor of about maybe a hundred people, just three, actually two are retiring. I might be the only person. It's a lonely, isolating place, and there's a lot of hope that Black employees have placed in me that I'm only now becoming aware of, and that gives me hope and inspiration, but fear and trepidation at the same time. And that is. Disconcerting because it is a reflection of a power differential, a racialized power differential. I shouldn't be the only Black person. And success for Black people should not rest solely on my shoulders. Of course. Or the shoulders of of a a handful of people.
4: So you're isolated as Black and you are also isolated as gay? Or you have more of, in the gay world, you have more of a community?
5: To be truthful, it is far more difficult for me to navigate my place of employment and this region as a black man than it is a gay man.
4: Wow. You have a partner? Me? No, I'm asking her. Oh. Oh, no.
5: (laughs) I have never understood why you don't have a train of suitors going after you.
6: Good question. I don't know.
5: I don't know. Do you feel objectified?
6: At, oh, at the Capitol? All the time. Okay. Like, when we were working in politics, like, there were, um, there was a time where, like, two legislators had a bet on who could sleep with me first.
5: Can you talk about that? Oh, episode? sure. I want to ask you, what could I have done differently?
6: Were you there? You?
5: Yeah. I was, it was the four of us.
6: That's funny. I, um, that has but,
5: fucked with me for years now. And I, I have... Never question I keep asking myself is what should I have done differently to have supported you?
6: I wish I had an answer, but I honestly don't remember you there. Like
4: that is so telling.
6: Mm-hmm. What does it say? because I, I mean I don't.
4: I totally believe you. you know, when you dissociate, <laughs> mm-hmm. on some level, he may even remember other things that you don't remember. when he says I was there. But it stayed with you, and you never brought it up somehow. Why? I think
5: feelings of inadequacy and shame. Of you? Of myself.
4: Oh, wow.
5: I feel badly because I didn't interrupt what was going
6: on. Did you know what was going on?
5: I was very clear to me what was going on.
6: I thought we would keep it, like... I, I remember trying to make it... Um, Funny. Well, fu- and not to cause a scene, because it, it, like, there all of a sudden were tons of people... That I
5: didn't know be. about the betting. Yeah. The, the fact that they were putting you in a compromising position, I mean, was what was important. Yeah.
4: You're, you're being, you know, tossed as a toy. And you're trying to be classy about it and not to say anything and to just kind of joke it off or remain gracious or talk about something else. And Mm -hmm. he's watching the whole thing. And as could have happened if it was not a woman's story, but a racial story, he's saying, I sat there, I watched the whole thing and I said nothing. And one question is, since you remember it actually better than her, what happened to you? Um,
5: I kind of stood there and the only thing I thought I could do was to create a diversion mm-hmm. that involved your sister. And mind you, there was a obliquely homophobic remark that one of these people said to me earlier that evening. And so I was I was filtering everything through that. And you know, that's that's how I walk in, it's like, oh my God, they're, they're already screwed with me, now they're screwing with her. How can I rescue you? Mm-hmm. And how can I minimize collateral damage to me? And that was the she's gotta go get her sister.
6: And that and that worked. Like it got me out. Wow.
5: So this is helpful because it's it's to be honest, ever since then I kept asking myself, why didn't you call them out on what was going on? Why don't I just articulate that this was wrong and that you were gonna leave or ask you if you wanted to leave?
6: Getting me out of there is huge. Thank you for getting me out of there.
4: This is a tricky situation in which she gets harassed. He sees it. He does help her through his deflection. He gets her out of the situation. And nevertheless, he's been haunted with this for quite a while, wondering what else he could have done, what else he could have said, what he did and did not do. And these situations, as bystanders, where we see other people take a fall, where we see other people blamed for mistakes they didn't make. Many situations that require a form of standing up and speaking out. I think we all have these situations on our chart of conscience accountability. very hard to say something in that moment when you have just gotten your own dose of toxic stuff Mm -hmm. and you don't want to be punched literally or metaphorically.
5: You know, I wonder about that though.
4: Ah, okay.
5: There's a piece of me when I talk about not being able to breathe, it creates rage below it all. I'm just, this is, this is not right. And it pisses me off. And, this piece wants to fight. I'm in some ways itching for a fight. I'm itching for a fight because it's, it's like, I'm gonna take you motherfuckers on. And I don't care whether I win or not, because it's the, having their bodies on my neck is dehumanizing. And so as I'm sitting here with the discomfort of that moment, it's like, what wow. I asked you questions, like, what, what, what's really at the heart of that question is the piece of it is, did I do enough? And then it's the, you were mad as fucking hell.
6: Yeah, and then it'd be like, I was stonewalled by, I couldn't get a meeting for almost two years after that.
4: And when you don't go from the dissociation to the survival strategy, and you actually measure the emotional resonance of this, because you, you, you're so well defended as you need to be in the workspace since the memory is creeping in on you I just want to bring emotional resonance to this memory not just the survival skills I don't know
6: there's almost a level of consistent fear that follows you around and it's it's frustrating and it's degrading and it's dehumanizing and it's so much about a reminder or what is said as a reminder in my mind of why I'm not enough. And that's what I carry with me. I'm really bad at naming the feelings game. I apologize. That's always a struggle for me. What is the emotion? What is the feeling?
4: Do you know what happens sometimes? when I sit with someone who tells me that, is that I feel it. I was listening and I thought, I'm not enough. After all what I've done, after how hard I try, after how much I give, after how careful I am. And you're asking me why I don't have a bunch of suitors? Because I have a sign on the front and of the back that says, stay away.
2: Yeah.
4: Not because I don't want, but I just don't know how to take off the sign and still feel that it's okay to be available and open. Well,
6: plot twist, I wasn't expecting that one to come today.
4: <laughs> um, just admit minute, and I'll be back in a second. Okay.
6: Okay. How are you do it? Should we check in? I'm good,
5: but oh boy, I never saw I didn't even see two-thirds of this coming. No, I know. It's oh. like the best therapy session when you like you go in with an agenda and it's completely disruptive. I know it. I'm in a really good headspace because it's allowing me to ask, like, what's deeper? Like, here's the thought. What's improving that?
6: Good. Stupid shit. <laughs> I'm like, holy shit, why are we talking about my dating life? (laughs) Oh right, that's what hurt. Got it. No, I don't I just I never realized how much I had
5: carried it. All these years. I can't believe I didn't remember that you were there. At least I didn't I mean there was no resentment or
6: anything like that for me.
4: In a three hour session, I sometimes have to go to the bathroom. And I think that I should go to the bathroom each time because it's quite interesting what happens in my absence and what they actually say to each other. Welcome back. <laughs> what did I miss? What have we not touched? <sighs> Where you addressed it in your head and now is the opportunity to... Uh...
5: Um, what The discussion of this episode at this restaurant in until I brought it up and started talking through it, I never realized how much uh, it had carried it with me.
6: Situations like that, I think, are part of the reason that I struggle to trust men. And going back to that micro level of, like, you and I and the expectation of who you were for me in that moment was probably a little bit unfair.
4: You're shaking your head.
5: Uh, Unfair felt, did not stick well with me, that felt like you're being too hard on yourself. That's probably true. You know, critical thought and self-shaming are, two, in my mind, two very different things. So my mind went to race. Oh, yeah. And then it's the, is her work around racial difference, racism, white supremacy, based in shame, or is it based in objective views and personal commitments to grow white people who do it out of guilt don't do it for too long no, and I told you
6: yeah one no. of my
5: biggest fears is you're gonna this friendship will run its course you'll move to an excerpt and be a republican and have had this episode during own life is oh I used to have a I used to have a black friend one of my big concerns for our friendship is that for you to to deeply be my friend in the way that would be meaningful for me means that you will always be swimming against the current, and a very strong current, and a very personal one, especially if it comes from your family. And I don't want that to be based in guilt or shame.
6: Like the part about race for me is not driven by what I feel guilty about. The piece about race that really drives me is comes from the people that I love. But when I started like feeling race and why I thought that race was important, started long before you I was, you know, twenty two and um I had a friend one night, you know, she wanted to take me to this church. It was gonna be gospel music, it was like nine o'clock at night. Did you wanna go? And I said, Okay, you know, sure. And we walk in and we were late and it had already started. It's, a it's a, yeah, we were the only two white people in the in the space. And that was a situation that I had never been in before. And we looked at each other and we're like, you know what? I think this is going to be uncomfortable. We probably don't belong here. We probably should leave. But they were in the middle of prayer. So we weren't, we didn't leave. So we said we're going to sit um, and we're going to wait. And of course, you know, it's Black church. So they're like, okay, amen, go hug somebody you don't know. And it was like this huge, like, there was something in that space that was unlike anything that I had experienced. This group of people were the most kind, loving, supportive, wonderful people that I had ever met. And that was my first experience in like a predominantly black community. And when I moved away, they like sent me off with everything that I could possibly need. You know, they talk about what they went through in the 60s and and what they go through now and it it hurts my spirit because I love these people. And that experience changed how I see the world. It's not that oh I'm colorblind and I don't see race or but it isn't fair. There's a level of injustice that is not just not okay. I have I'm struggling right now with I don't know what that looks like for me. I don't know what it looks like to be part of this fight right now because you know, I can I can go to the protests and I can, you know, write letters and I can do all that. I've learned it's not my job to be the leader, and I'm a follower in this journey right now, and that's okay. Um, It's hard right now being in a job that we're not doing anything to change the world.
4: At the beginning of the session, they told me that they had brought a bottle of champagne that they wanted to open at the end and celebrate, but they didn't know what the session was going to be like. They had to hear a lot of difficult and challenging things from each other. They still thought that they wanted to open the bottle of champagne, that they had cleared the air, even though they were no longer working together. And even though there's a part of her that is deeply frustrated about having lost a profession in which she found tremendous meaning. And that on some level, he had decided that making money was more important for her. And so they were living with all kinds of misunderstandings and false assumptions. They did send me a picture after the session showing me that they had opened the bottle. And so their relationship persevered and I raised my glass to them.
0: Perel is a therapist, best-selling author, speaker, and host of the podcasts, Where Should We Begin and How's Work? To apply with a colleague or partner to do a session for the podcast, or to follow along with each episode's show notes, go to howswork.estherperel.com. How's Work is produced by Magnificent Noise for Gimlet and Esther Perel Productions. Our production staff includes Eric Newsom, Eva Walchover. Huaté Gatana, and Kristen Muller. Original music and additional production by Paul Schneider. And the executive producers of Howe's Work are Esther Perel and Jesse Baker. We would also like to thank Lydia Polgreen, Colin Campbell, Courtney Hamilton, Nick Oxenhorn, Sarah Kramer, Jack Saul, and the entire Esther Perel global media team.